Good morning. My name is Mark Schleif, one of the elders here at uh, Capital Community. And um, as we go to God's Word, uh, let's pray together and ask for His Holy Spirit to teach us. Lord God, thank you so much for the gift of yourself. And Lord, as we look at these uh, scripture passages leading up to your advent, your coming amongst us, Lord, there are so many things that have been in your plan from before the world existed, before you made us. You've always known each moment and how it would unfold. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for your incredible sovereign wisdom, power, planning, your strength to carry it out. And Lord, we thank you for this blessed time when we celebrate your coming to be flesh amidst us. And so, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher, open our minds to understand your word, and our hearts to receive it with joy this Christmas season. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You ever, one thing we do get to do here in China a lot is watch movies and shows. In fact, you can, it's very easy to get uh, a series and binge watch through several seasons of a show that you haven't seen before. I really, like many, enjoy movies. And, but there, there, whether it's a movie or a book or a scene in a particular episode, there are sometimes, there's, you know there's how there are certain scenes or certain passages that you really, really enjoy. Parts that you want to go back to and read again. If I'm flipping through channels on the TV and a movie channel comes up and it's a movie I know and it's at one of those particular scenes, I will stop whatever I'm doing and wait until that scene is over because it's, it's, it's so good. And I particularly like stories where there is a whole, a difficult challenge or you know, this is a good story arc. There's a, there's a, there's a crisis to be solved, or there's a great challenge to be overcome, and suddenly there's the beginnings, the stirrings of hope. And in the midst of this turmoil and this crisis, there's a sense that it's going to be okay. I'm American. I love happy endings. So, you know, that's the, that's the way we make all our movies and things. We don't, the other kind don't do very well. But uh, so a couple examples of scenes that are favorites for me. Um, in The Lord of the Rings, there is a, in the final book or the final movie, The Return of the King, there is the city of Minas Tirith. The last great city of men is under siege by several square miles of big and ugly. There is a, a huge army of evil camped outside the gates. They've been battering down the doors. They've been hurling all kinds of rocks and things into the city. They've been attacking it with the uh, the witch king and the other nine that are on these flying creatures are coming in and attacking the city. And, and it's at a very desperate point. The enemy has breached the gates. They're filling the lower level. The, the defenders of the city are retreating back into the upper levels, trying to protect the women and children. And they feel like they're all alone. And suddenly they hear horns. All these horns being blown, sort of like the shofar in the, in the Old Testament, like the ram's horn. And these horns come, and over the crest of the distant hill come thousands and thousands and thousands of the riders of Rohan. The other group of men come to the aid of the city. And in this incredible scene, King Theoden then stirs his men, knowing that they're facing almost certain death. 
And as he rides along the men, they all have their spears out. He's, he's whacking their spears with his sword. It's just a powerful scene. And then the army begins to move. And the, defend, the orcs and the other evil creatures line up a line of pikes. And they start shooting arrows. And, they're shoot, and they all confident, oh, we're going to take care of these guys. But as more and more riders come over the hill, you see the terror grow in their eyes. And they start to scream and to retreat. And the thundering army of riders just plunges through them. Could watch that scene over and over again. There's lots of other scenes. It's a great movie. It could be even better if they take about about an hour of prolonged goodbyes and crying and weeping and regrets that Peter Jackson felt like he should put in there. But but it's a really good movie. Um, another one, and if you guys and if you ladies are thinking, well, this is kind of rated G for guys right now. Another movie, and what's ironic, Ed Graham and I were talking about how good this movie is, Pride and Prejudice, the 2005 edition. Um, now, the book's even better, and, and some would say the BBC series, if you want the whole story of the book, you watch that one, but the cinematography in this one is excellent. We were, we were both in agreement, and in the, in the story, Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy have a very confrontational relationship, and... And they seem to be at odds every time. But then there comes a change, ending in a, a surprise proposal of marriage, which is somewhat demeaning, and she rejects it out of hand. But then things begin to change, and there's the stirrings of hope that there might be something different between them. He, inter he intervenes in the, the marriage of her younger sister, and she learns about that later. He brings his good friend, Mr. Bingley, back to court her older sister Jane. And as she and Jane go to sleep that night, they're talking about how, how happy Jane is because she's just received a proposal from Mr. Bingley. And she's going she's gonna to be, in, and, and her mother's, of course, ecstatic because her main goal in life is to marry off her five daughters. And now she's got two out of five done. And, but there's a knock at the door. And Lady Catherine de Bourgh comes in played by Judy Dench and, and Elizabeth Bennett, played by Kira Knightley. Awesome scene. Catherine de Berg intends Mr. Darcy to marry her daughter. And she's heard a rumor that Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy are engaged, which she's a little behind the times, but she heard about the... And, and she finally, after insulting Elizabeth Bennett for a couple of minutes, says, are you now engaged to him? And she said, no, ma'am, I'm not. He said, will you promise to me that you will never enter into such an engagement? And she said, no, ma'am, I will not. You have now insulted me in every way, way possible and have nothing, can have nothing further to say. I think you should go. Goodbye. And from that moment, when the word of this gets back to Mr. Darcy, the next scene is on the moors and Elizabeth... Is, is out there just in her thoughts, and Mr. Darcy comes walking up. It's this pivotal point where Mr. Darcy begins to hope that Elizabeth may have different feelings towards him, and she begins to hope that he may have different feelings towards her, and they do something about it. It's a time of hope. Well, in God's story, the Christmas story is one of those great times of hope. Now it builds towards it, so we need to go back towards the beginning a little bit. I want to share a couple of my favorite scenes from God's great story of hope in Christmas. We, uh, James has already alluded to one of them um, in the pastoral talk, which is great tie-in. But think back 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he made a place for man to live in fellowship with him. And every day in the garden with our first father Adam and our first mother Eve, they would walk with the presence of the Lord. I believe it was Jesus Christ walking with them there in the garden. But they were tempted by the deceiver to rebel against God, to disobey him, to eat from the one, to do the one thing he told them not to do. And they rebelled against him and they fell into sin and they doomed our entire race to spiritual death to separation from the daily realized presence of God. But God knew that was going to happen. And so there are three great mysteries that are involved in this because you know God has planned this from the beginning. One is God has control over all things. Yet he enables each of us to freely choose whether or not we will accept his love and be reconciled with him. He gives us a choice. Even though he's in sovereign control, even of the ability to make that choice, he gives us a choice and he enables us to do it. Another is God's perfect justice fully punishes all sin, but his perfect mercy has also taken the entire punishment on himself to give the opportunity for us to escape that punishment. And the third is that God, who has made every atom in the universe, could enter his creation personally in a form composed of those very same materials and be born as a human child so he could look us in the eye. From the very beginning of our separation from him, God has offered us hope. He has promised to provide a way for us to return to him involving a person yet to be born. And so as it proceeded, as history proceeded, from that very first moment in the garden when he confronted Adam and Eve and he told them, you can't stay here any longer, But he didn't say, you'll be away from me forever. He gave them a promise in Genesis chapter 3. And he says to Eve, you're going to have an offspring. And the deceiver will bruise his heel. But the offspring will crush the enemy's head. And so he begins over human history to give more and more clues as to who this person will be. First, this one born of woman. So he's from Eve's, Eve's line. That part's kind of general. Uh, then in Genesis chapter 15, he has a promise to Abraham and he says, this is going to be one of your descendants and all nations will be blessed through him. Then later in Genesis, when Jacob renamed Israel as blessing his sons, he blesses the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49. He says, there will come a descendant who will eternally possess the authority to rule. So now we know he's from the tribe of Judah. In 1 Chronicles 17, he promises David that one of your sons will have a kingdom which will be eternal. And I will never take my love from him. So now we know he's in the line of David. And finally later in in Micah, who is a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, he said he will be born in Bethlehem, David's city, one whose origins are from ancient times. But it's in that time of Isaiah in the word of the Lord to him, that the message takes on new clarity. And so this is one of the things I want to show you in Isaiah chapter 9, the dawn of hope. We're going to look at uh, verses 2 through 5 first. Y'all could ignore most of what I say. What God has to say, this is the beauty 
of the Christmas message. And so let's, let's take time to look at it. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. The dawn of hope. There's a literal dawn referred to. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who live in the shadow of death, the consequences of our sin, a light is dawning. And we're going to see in a moment what the reason is for that hope. But for first, just to summarize some things from this, we see that there is a, a light in the very place where death casts its shadow. But there's an interesting thing here, and this is important for those of us who aren't pure of pure Jewish descent. It says, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. He is hinting at the fact that in days to come, not only his chosen people of Israel, but many more will be brought into the nation of God's people. And then says that there's going to be a time of plunder of enemies. And the greatest enemy, the final enemy, is death. And the one who is to come will plunder death's kingdom and rescue millions and millions of souls and take them into the eternal presence of God. It then talks about freedom from slavery, the bonds of death's slavery, and the slavery to sin are going to be broken. It says the yoke, across their, the, the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, and the rod of their oppressor. So it's a time of freedom and then it talks about peace. It says, all these implements of war will be burned in the fire. No one's going to need them anymore. Every warrior's boot, every garment rolled in blood, all war will be in. There will be a peace that is real and that lasts. Not just an interlude between wars. What's the reason for this hope? Isaiah goes on. The reason for hope is in the next two verses. He says, for to us... A child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And how will this be done? The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will bear all authority. He takes off our shoulders the slavery and oppression of sin he puts on himself the authority over all nations and brings us peace. And just in, to, to summarize a few thoughts from this, this passage, this child, not just a child, but a son, a relationship. You notice in Scripture, we, we have a lot of theological terms we put together. 
to describe um, different ideas that we draw out from Scripture. God always talks about himself in relational terms. He talks about who he is to his people. He's a judge. He's a provider. He's a strong tower we may run into. It's always in relationship. Most of all, he talks about himself as a father. And we're going to see in just a, a few minutes also as a shepherd. But what's important here is there's a son. And the question is, whose son? He is a son of man. He is a son of David. But most importantly, he's going to be the son of God. And he's going to rule. Now, we know he's God in human form. The monotheistic people of Israel would never have called any human being mighty God. Everlasting. They knew better. That was heresy. That was blasphemy. Only God himself deserves those titles. And so it hints that this person that's going to come, this son, is going to be, like the other passage says, from days, his origins are from days of old. He is going to be God in the flesh. Then we see his eternal peaceful reign. It says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And we experience that today. His kingdom is increased with every soul that comes to spiritual life through the message of God's word and the salvation of Jesus Christ. And then he is David's righteous heir. He'll reign on David's throne from that time on forevermore, and this will be fully the work of God. This is not something that could be done through a human uprising or revolt or by strength of arms or anything else. This will be fully the work of God. Praise be to God. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. This is such a great scene, and encourage you to go back and, and soak in some of these. But we look at the next part is hope realized, and that's in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we finally see Isaiah's prophecy coming true in the birth of the Son. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Let's pause there for just a moment. That's a strange combination of things. She was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. It's really good we know their backstory from the first chapters of Matthew. Because Joseph, a young carpenter in the town of Nazareth, which is in the land of Galilee, and, and we didn't read in Isaiah chapter 9, the first couple of verses, but it says, in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. It's actually a prediction about how Galilee is going to be blessed. Here's a young couple engaged to be married from that region, from the town of Nazareth. And Joseph, as we know, was pledged to be married to this young lady, Mary, who was a virgin. Remained a virgin at this time. But the Holy Spirit had come upon her. An angel had appeared to her and said that God is going to bring his special son through your womb. And she said, how will this be? I've never known a man. And he says, 
the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and come upon you. The child conceived within you is of him. And so he formed this child in her womb, still flesh, still fully human, but also the Son of God. And this child was growing to her, and, and Joseph, when he heard that she was pregnant, and obviously he assumed what we would rightly assume is that she'd had an, an affair with someone else, and, and he was going to put her away quietly so that she wouldn't be subjected to public scorn or stoned or anything else. And the Holy Spirit caused him to understand, sent an angel to talk to him and tell him in a, in a dream that this child was indeed from the Holy Spirit. And so he took her as his fiance and under his responsibility, but they had no sexual relations until after the time that this child was born. He kept her as a virgin and so the prophecy would be fulfilled in another passage of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, a version, I think 6, I'm not sorry. Don't quote me on 6. But anyway, the, that the virgin will conceive and bear a son. And so Joseph and Mary are now on their way to Bethlehem. It says, when they came there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Sovereign God, who knows every moment of history before it occurs, chooses to bring his son into the world through this poor couple in strange circumstances and doesn't even give them a hotel room for the night for the birth to occur. Some of the most humble circumstances that could occur could be realized for his son to arrive in the flesh. But it continues. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. At night, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Natural reaction. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Isn't it great? So many times when God appears to people, the very first words are, do not fear, do not be afraid. Obviously, just the sight of heavenly beings is going to be so awesome, it would overwhelm all our senses, and we want to fall on our faces. We take God so casually, and yet here they appear, they are terrified when this one angel comes. Get ready, guys, there's more. Um, they, they said, he said, do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger, basically in a feeding trough amongst the animals. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men, on whom his favor rests. And I don't know what that sounded like. I don't know what the tune was or what instruments accompanied them. But there are times when I think we have, we have some very stately and solemn Christmas carols. They're not always in this church. Um, I think some of the songs in the way we sang them today with the electric guitar and some of the other, and, just a, uh, and the drums and some of the excitement that accompanies that, I think the, the chorus of the angels... It's probably much more similar to that. 
they were bursting out. Now, you heard the hallelujah chorus. Just the, the majesty of that, the shepherds got to experience a little bit of that at that time. As the heavens were filled with a heavenly host, praising God. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. God always does just as he says he's going to do. Here is a child born of woman in Abraham's line in the, tri- in the tribe of Judah, a descendant, direct descendant of David. Both Mary and Joseph were by birth descended from David. If you look in Matthew, you'll see Joseph's line. I think the, the line that's told in Luke, scholars believe, is actually Mary's line through her father. Both are descended from David. And yet also the Son of God, one whose origins are from old, born in Bethlehem. Now the big question is, why shepherds? There's lots of questions. Why the manger? Why, why, why no hotel room? Why no hospital? But why shepherds? Why? Why would God choose to get shepherds to be the ones? Now, like One thing that James said, that was obviously they were very good messengers. They went out and they told everyone what they'd seen. But there's something special about shepherds. Shepherds portray God's heart for his people. God describes himself more as a shepherd than as a king. If you look in Scripture, Psalm 23 describes God shepherding us throughout our lives and even into eternity. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there where the light is dawned, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me. And it talks about an eternal banquet in his presence. You go to Isaiah 40, God comes with power, and yet he treats his people like a gentle shepherd and with tenderness. In Jeremiah 31, he has scattered Israel in judgment, but now like a shepherd, he's going to go over, go out, and he's going to gather them and watch over them. Micah chap, or sorry, Ezekiel 34, it talked about Israel's leaders being very poor under shepherds. They even ate some of the sheep. They were poor leaders. They were selfish. They were about themselves, like many earthly rulers and managers are. And so God says he himself will go and seek out his sheep. He will gather them. He'll judge between them. And then he will exalt his servant David to rule over and care for them, which I think is a reference to his son in the line of David being the one. And then Micah 5 is that one that predicts the birth in Bethlehem. One whose origins are from ancient times will be born in Bethlehem to shepherd Israel in the strength of the Lord and bring peace which reaches to the ends of the earth. In John chapter 10, Jesus himself, 
this child now grown up and walking among us and revealing God to us every day, described himself as the good shepherd. He says, I call my sheep by name. He knows every one of you. He knows every one of us personally. He says, I give my life for the sheep. I am the gate for the sheep. In John 21, he turns a fisherman into a shepherd when he tells Peter three times, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. In Revelation, in the end of time, we see a great multitude dressed in white standing before the throne, praising the lamb and the one who sits on the throne. And it says their eternal destiny, it says the lamb will lead his saved people to springs of living water in God's presence. He will be their shepherd. And finally, Peter, that one, the fisherman who became a shepherd of God's flock, says that human shepherds of God's flock should serve willingly and humbly in expectation of receiving the, the chief shepherd's reward when he appears. So shepherds were the people who most represented the heart of God. They were the ones with whom he could most identify, and he knew they would understand what's coming. Shepherds are also proven faithful in God's service. If you look through history, how many people were shepherds? Abel, one of the, the first generation born on earth, was a shepherd and gave one of the first sacrifices that pleased God. Job, Job earned, uh, had thousands and thousands of sheep. He was a, he was a shepherd, and, and God wouldn't want him to do this about me, but he even bragged to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Look how great a man he is. And then let Satan kind of have a time of testing of him. Abraham was a shepherd, the father of faith for all who believe in God. His son Isaac also, in the first of the promised children of blessing in Abraham's line, was a shepherd. His son Jacob, renamed to Israel, and all the nation of Israel were shepherds. When they went to live in Egypt, they lived in a separate place because the Egyptians detested shepherds. So they had them live in the rich land of Goshen, a little ways away, the suburbs. And so they, they were... And then God chose the descendants of Israel and his 12 sons to be a nation, to bring his word and eventually his son to us. Moses was regarded as the man whom God talks to face to face, like talking with his friend. He gave him his law. He shepherded, he rescued his people from slavery and shepherded them all the way to the borders of the promised land. He's a type of Christ. A precursor, a preconfiguration, and an image of what Christ would do for us spiritually. David, described as a man after God's own heart, began as a shepherd. God even tells him at the end of his life, I took you from the flock and made you king over my people. And then Amos, shepherd prophet who warmed Israel of judgment and prophesied the restoral of David's tent. He's the only one of the one of very few of the prophets do even know their occupation. But Amos is very specifically mentioned that he was a shepherd who was called away from the flock to tell people of God's coming judgment. So God's heart for his people is that of a shepherd, and shepherds have been very instrumental in his bringing his word and his son to us. But also shepherds can uniquely appreciate what it costs God to live among us. I have a picture here. I think this is a shepherd in Romania. Look at all those sheep. If you're a shepherd, you go where the sheep want to be. You spend all your time 
amongst the sheep. When the Bible talks about us as sheep, it's not very flattering. Sheep are very dumb animals. Sheep, Sheep wander off. They'll chase the next little bit of something. In fact, if you read any Louis L'Amour, other good stories here, Louis L'Amour stories or other Western stories, cattlemen hated shepherds. They would, they, would, they would drive off shepherds, kill shepherds, try to chase them out of the county because sheep have a tendency to tear up everything. They eat the grass down to the roots. Cows will just graze, but sheep will, sheep will, will destroy an area and make it no good for cattle. Sheep will go wandering off by themselves and pay no attention to where they are and fall prey to predators. If a sheep gets near a stream, it's very dangerous because it can fall in the water and the water gets in its wool and weigh it down and so it can't get itself out and it will drown. Sometimes even a sheep, if it falls over, for those of you who've seen VeggieTales, the sheep are falling over. That's true. Sometimes a sheep will fall down and it can't even get itself back up because of the weight of its body and its tiny little legs. And so a shepherd is constantly supervising, helping Helping the sheep, the sheep are depressed, he's rubbing their heads, you know. He's keeping them with them, they're wandering off places. Isn't it a great description of us? Sheep have their issues every day. And the shepherd who knows much more, is much wiser, gives his life to spend his time amongst them. That's a picture of God among his people. The shepherds knew what it cost. The shepherds were on the job that night. They were there with the sheep. They knew what it cost them to live their lives among the sheep. They knew what it cost for the good shepherd, the, the, the chief shepherd, to become a lamb. To leave behind all that he had and just be one amongst the flock. As we look at these things, the story of Christmas just one of those great moments when hope became flesh and dwelled among us. We beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. I encourage you in this Christmas season, there's so many things we do, there's so many other things, and they're great. Love family traditions, but just take time to look at these scenes of God's story, God's arrival in the flesh and the person of his son, and enjoy them. Take the time to just enjoy the moments. Watch them through to the end. And do as Mary, as Mary did when all these things happened. She treasured them up. She pondered them in her heart. Let's ponder these things this Christmas. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your great gift of yourself. Thank you that it's so exciting year after year to come back and celebrate your arrival because it means hope. We know that your life among us showed us your character and your love and your power and your abilities, your compassion. Lord, the lowest of society felt comfortable in your presence, not demeaned, not cast down, cared for, shepherded. Lord, when you died for us, You made possible everything that we need. And Lord, one day we know you're coming back for us in power and glory, but to teach, to treat your people with great tenderness and love and take us to a place where we'll be in your presence forever. So Lord, I pray that you would help us in this Christmas just to enjoy 
the message of hope. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.